Well, we are going to uh, continue our uh, little study in 1 John. If you have uh, a Bible with you or, you know, I used to say that all the time. If you have a Bible with you, now I need to say, if you have uh, the Word of God in some uh, media, um, I turn to 1 John. And uh, we want to continue what we've been talking about here. Uh, because that's what he's been talking about, and uh, that is this issue of the love of God. The love of God. You know, this year, I believe Henry's going to be teaching a mini-course on the love of God, and uh, that is, uh, it's a profound topic, and uh, it is uh, something that, um, it's one of those topics that you talk about a lot, but when it comes to when you really pay attention to the words in the text, uh, you know, you really um, are challenged, I, I trust, by this. So we're in verse 7 of chapter 4 here, okay? All right. So, you know, one question uh, that we could ask ourselves, because this is really what he's dealing with, is what motivates us to follow the Lord? You know, what really motivates, motivates us to do the right thing, to live rightly before God, to uh, live in such a way that is uh, commensurate with uh, what God uh, uh, desires for us, uh, for us to do. You know, the uh, Torah portion today uh, goes from uh, uh, chapter 7 and verse 12 all the way to chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. And in our Torah study, we're going to be learning about that, that this actually, last week combined with this week, talks about that motivation uh, a little bit, you know, in the, in the Torah. Uh, and, uh, and so the question for us becomes, uh, I think there are, there, in a way, there's two choices of uh, what motivates us to really follow the Lord. Fear of what will happen to us if we don't do that, or uh, uh, responding to his love uh, in what he has done. And we may come from a particular faith tradition. You know, what's interesting as I look around the room, uh, very few people, at least uh, in this room right now, grew up uh, in this Messianic movement. Uh, and we may have grown up in a variety of different cultures and faith traditions. And oftentimes, that religious tradition shapes the way we understand God and the way that we uh, respond. Unfortunately, for better or for worse, many, many of us grew up in particular traditions where we're really motivated by fear. Uh, fear of the judgment of God you know, the anvil of God, you know, coming down on our heads uh, if we don't get it right. Uh, whether that was uh, intentional or unintentional, uh, that is often the case. And uh, sadly, when we're motivated by fear, we end up with a form of legalism. That if I follow the rules, if I, if I follow the, the, the laws or if I follow the rules, then, oh, then I'll be okay, Right? However, when we are motivated by love, it's a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit more intangible, 
And we are responding out of devotion. We're responding out of devotion uh, with passion. And that is very, very important. So how we understand God is uh, a very important grounding in how we're going to uh, live our lives. And it is very interesting, if you go back to the, uh, keep your hand there in 1 John, but if you go back to just this week's Torah portion, we won't go all over the place, just this week. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, actually it's the very end of last week's portion, don't tell anybody. It's the end, very end of last week's portion at the beginning of chapter 7, which by the way, today we'll have like a little bit of a... Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground in our Torah study. We're going to talk a little bit about last week as well as this week, because they go together. Anyway, it says in um, verse 6 uh, of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, uh, uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him, and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I'm commanding you to do them. Okay. Then this week's portion begins where he says, therefore, if you keep them, or akev, because you keep them, the, you know, the cause and effect, because you keep them, uh, the Lord will indeed pour blessing upon blessing over you. But it's important for us to understand that God says here that he loves, in the context of, of Israel, that he loves Israel for evidently no apparent reason, okay? Uh, and you know, when you read the rabbinic literature, it is chock full of trying to find a reason, of figuring out a reason, of creating a reason. Uh, but in the text of the Bible, the reason, a reason is not given. And that, see, it's very interesting when you think about human nature. Frankly, I mean, I could go to town on how the rabbinic literature reflects human nature in responding to God. That's a whole other story. But what you see in that literature is, I can't live with this. There has to be a reason why he loves us. See? But no reason is given. And that is very difficult for us as human beings, forget about just Israel or being Jewish, to swallow, to be loved out of the volition of God, out of the will of God. Because we know ourselves better than anybody else. And we know all the warts. And we all know how undeserving we all are uh, for that lavish love to be poured out upon us. That is described, by the way, so well in the book of Ephesians in the first chapter. But there is something here that goes along with love that helps us, I think, a little bit. And that is the idea of chosenness. Because, see, verse 6 comes before verse 7. At least in my Bible, I don't know. For you are a holy people to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, 
and of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number and so on and so forth. So there is this relationship between chosenness and love. Okay. Now, when we come to the pages of the Brit Chadashah, we know that this chosenness is extended to all who embrace the God of Israel. Not only, uh, not just talking about people who are Jewish, but all who embrace the God of Israel, right? Whoever truly embraces the Messiah and is embracing the God of Israel, and therefore election language, chosen language, is used in the New Covenant in a number of places. Romans chapter 8 is a good one. The first Peter is another one. Other places, okay? It doesn't take away the uniqueness of Israel, but it, it explains the relationship of all human beings who embrace the God of Israel. So it's important for us to recognize here that we are all, when we embrace Yeshua, we're chosen uh, uh, by him. We, we, we are the elect. We are part of the elect. Okay? And that means that God has lavished love upon us, not based on... Uh, the entrance examination, not based on our, uh, you know, uh, grade point average, not based on good attendance, uh, not based on uh, intellect or who our parents uh, were uh, or anything like that, okay? Uh, and so here you have this tremendous passage in the Torah of all places, right? Uh, in the Torah about the, the love of God. Now, when you go to the end of the, toward the end of this passage, in what was read today, what Marcy read in Hebrew, and uh, what was read in English as well by Marge and, and Theo, it's very interesting when you read verse 12 of chapter 10. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Now, require, this very interesting word. My guess is, in some of your translations, it doesn't say require. It says ask, right? What does the Lord ask of you? And so, a real strong ask can move into the realm of require, right? Uh, and, and so, understand that it's not require as in pass the test, it's, a, it's require as in I'm begging you. I'm begging you because it's for your good. Ugh, if only we would really like underline that and remember that and memorize that, right? What does the Lord ask of you, beg from you, require from you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and love him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Not for God's good, but for our good. And I would say that when you see all these words, fear the Lord, walk in his ways, love him, serve him, all your heart, all your soul, it is a reflection of the Shema. Because we're coming toward the end of that whole Shema section, you could call it. And... Um, uh, and so uh, uh, we don't need to belabor the point when it says fear God here in this context. Obviously, it cannot mean I'm afraid of God and he's going to chop my head off or, 
get rid of me or do something real bad to me unless I do everything he says. Because in the very next breath, it says love him. And loving and fearing him are two sides of the same coin. We talked about a little bit about that in our Wednesday morning Bible study this week. Uh, that we're talking about uh, uh, fearing God in the sense of, of, of his uh, uh, otherliness and, 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 and grandeur and greatness, but not afraid uh, uh, in the sense that uh, you know, retribution is going to come my way. And it's very sad that for many of us, that's how we view God. And that's how we, we are motivated by fear to serve him. Now, there's another thing in some of our lives. It isn't always the religious tradition that has created uh, this sense of fear and obligation. But sometimes, sadly, the way that we have related to our own fathers at home or wherever, uh, we relate to God as father, therefore, in the same way. And so... If we have a very negative understanding of our fathers, we may end up with a very negative understanding of God. And of course, we'll say, I know he loves me because the Bible tells me so. And I know he saved me from my sins because it's on the doctrinal statement of uh, the congregation in which, I, uh, uh, in which I am a part of. And so I believe it. I, but uh, we really need to, uh, whether it's in prayer or having people pour their lives into us, we need to understand that God truly does indeed love us. It seems like the most basic thing, but sometimes it's like an onion, uh, you know, that we have to peel uh, different layers. Because when we talk about God's love, it doesn't mean that he, that he is our, uh, you know, our go-to guy for whatever we uh, feel that we want or need, okay? But he really does love us, and as you may know, that uh, our relationship with God in covenant is, was used before it was used in the Bible. It was used as like a treaty, like covenant would really mean like a treaty, more than just simply the word promise, uh, like a treaty. But the word, like other interesting words in the Bible, is transformed uh, when we're talking about the relationship of God and human beings. And so, uh, what you have here in the Torah is that, you know, God is the king, right? God is the king, but he is the benevolent king. He is the king who cares. He is the king who is benevolent. And isn't that the way that we understand God all the way through the Bible? All the way like to the very end of the book of Revelation? All the way through? He is the king, the king of kings, right? Lord of lords. But not a king who is oppressive. Not a king who is like a megalomaniac. Not a king who is um, uh, one uh, who is a power hungry and, and all that we kind of think about you know, kings or leaders, and you know, political people, things of that nature. But he is the benevolent king. And so he loves us. And in, and in the ancient world, the language of love would be used when a king would talk about protecting the people. You know, I love you. But uh, not just, you know, that, that sort of that, I love you. You know, I, I love you. But I love you by the fact that I protect you and I and I uh, provide uh, uh, for you. And the relationship of the people to the king was also couched in loving 
words, the people love the king. How do they display it? Not with flags and with uh, ceremonies, but in obedience, but in living the right way. And that is what is being described all the way through, really beginning in the beginning of chapter 4 through the end of chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. Some of the richest chapters in the Bible that I believe influence the prophets uh, tremendously, as well as uh, you could also make a case for chapter 28, 29, and 30 of Deuteronomy, uh, and much of the New Covenant, uh, uh, that you have the God is the benevolent king, and he calls upon us to love him completely, right? Isn't that what the Shema is? When we say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's like a loyalty oath to the king. And what is our responsibility in that loyalty is love him. Love him with every bit of ourself, every bit of our being that there could be. See? Uh, and, and so that is what we see here. Now, having said all of that, we can go to 1 John chapter 4. Okay, and if we have time, we're even going to run back to Leviticus for a few minutes. Okay, we'll see if we have time. All right. So here in chapter 4, we know that if you have been uh, traveling this road with us here, in chapter 3, he talked about love uh, as a lifestyle of those uh, who believe. Sort of like uh, a command to love. Like, this is who you are, so you, you, you know, there is the command to love. Then you have, in the first six verses of chapter 4, a description of people who are not very loving who might have been mouthing uh, some correct words, but were not really very loving. And then he picks up this theme in chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 4 about now why or what is the ground of love? What is it that causes us to love? What is our inspiration to love? What is our motivation uh, to love? How is it that we can love? And what kind of love are we really talking about? Okay. So now, uh, in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then he basically states the opposite. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Okay? So, first he says, as has as Yeshua says, and as John says, let us love one another. But now, that, that we kind of know, okay, we're supposed to love one another. But here we see here, how do we do this and where does it come from? For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. All right. So, now people take this two different ways. Some could say, we could say, well, all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And so, therefore, anyone who uh, loves is born of God and knows God. The problem with that is not everyone is born of God. That uh, when we use, the, especially John, uses terminology, born of God, it's quite clear that he doesn't just mean born of my mother, and I'm created in the image and likeness of God. Other terms are used for that, okay? But born of God is a, a very specific uh, uh, understanding. 
Okay? Uh, when we talk about being born of God, it means a spiritual rebirth. Uh, born from above is what John himself uses in describing uh, you know, uh, Yeshua's words. Born from above, being born of God. But there is another New Covenant writer that uses another term. And uh, if you turn to the little uh, book uh, or letter of Titus, okay? Titus, if you go to like Hebrews and go backwards a little bit, you know, toward the front from Hebrews, you'll, you'll, you'll run into it, okay? Or if you go to Timothy, it's right after that, okay? In Titus chapter 3, it says in verse 5, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the way, that's another great spot here. According to his mercy. He saved us according to his mercy. Again, it's sort of like going back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. He saved us. He chose us. He loved us according to his mercy. Why me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You know, I ask, I've asked myself that question lots and lots of times. Lots of people just like me have heard the gospel, have heard the good news. And lots of people just like me would just pass it, pass it off. Probably not even remember years later the, uh, the interaction of even hearing it. But why did I pay attention? What? I don't know why. I mean, there are external reasons. There's external reasons. As I was sharing with someone uh, this morning about sharing a testimony, you know, when we talk about sharing our testimony, usually it's, tell us how you came to faith, okay? We usually don't say it like this, tell us why you came to believe. So there are lots of external reasons, right? Uh, you know, well, I met this person, and I went here, and then they did this, and then this happened in my life, and then here, and this happened, and that's, that's kind of like the journey, how it happened. But why it happens is a particular kind of interaction that we end up having with God, you know? And that sometimes we can't actually even articulate it completely, but some interaction we have with God. Well, here in Titus chapter 3, in verse 5, he describes it. He says, by his mercy, that's God's motivation, okay? His, uh, you know, favor we don't deserve, his sort of pitying us in a way. It's, it's sort of uh, akin to that. By the washing of regeneration. That's a huge statement. By the washing of regeneration. Washing is a very symbolic term of, of course, taking away sins, washing away our, our sins. But regeneration, of starting over, of not uh, taking a rickety old house and then putting up some drywall to keep everything uh, looking okay but really like tearing it down to its foundations and building it all over again. Regenerated. We have been regenerated. In other words, there, there is a spiritual transaction that takes place in the life of every single person that really knows the Lord, uh, and we are different. God has like created us all over again in a certain way. We're so hindered by language, you know, to describe exactly what God does. But it's like he creates us all over again. And when he creates us all over again, we begin a process of renewal. But it begins with being created all over again. And that is 
with, via the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God breaks into our lives and other terminology puts off the old man, puts on the new. There is a change. I will say that, you know, when people ask me about myself, I can tell you all of the uh, hows of, uh, well, I met this person, and then I went to this Bible study, and then I was challenged, you know, and I, then I saw this. But there was a, a time when I, I knew, as I like to say, I moved from point A to point B, that there was an interaction with God. And I believe it. Why, how did I, why do I believe it? I don't know, but I believe it, and, I, and, and it's true. Uh, and that is where this whole idea of you know, repentance, confession, forgiveness, it, it's like the perfect storm of God's love uh, uh, comes together. We can't all define the moment just like when did I fall in love with my wife? Was it at exactly 2.03 p.m. on such and such a day? Was it the first time I saw her? Yeah, some people say that. The first time I saw her. Yeah, a few people say that, right? But I would guess it's kind of hard to actually, like, it was at this moment. Like, five minutes ago, I didn't, and now I do, you know? I, that, uh, you know, some people will, will say, and, and I believe that many great stories get embellished over the years a little bit, okay? But... Uh, you know, uh, it is very difficult to pinpoint. So it can be like that with God. I don't know the moment. In my case, I kind of do because I was I prayed, Lord. You know, I prayed, Lord, if Yeshua. Of course, I never uh, I, I never heard of Yeshua in those days. Uh, if you know what I mean, right? You know, if Jesus is the Messiah, I I want to believe it. You know, I, I really do. But if he's not, please, like, take everything away. Take, and, you know, I just knew in that moment that it, it was true and it was real and, and that I uh, uh, believed in, in Yeshua. There's a transaction that takes place. Whether, again, I'll, I'll emphasize this because sometimes we walk away very insecure from, from hearing things like this. Because I can't remember the moment. It's okay. As long as you know that it was there at some point. In other words, that I, yes, I really do believe, and, and um, you know, and, and sometimes we need some education in what has taken place in order to really just to really get it, you know, that there is a mechanical thing, sort of like a spiritual mechanics that take place when you come to know the Lord. When you embrace Yeshua, there is a transaction that takes place. God forgives your sins, the Spirit of God comes and indwells you and empowers you. Now to begin to live a life commensurate with, uh, with his life. Now, in the Bible, we have lots of uh, uh, terms like Yeshua comes to live in us. The Spirit of God comes to live in us. We abide in him. He abides in us. It gets crowded, right? Right? But what it really is saying is that now, now in this fleshly life, God dwells in me and is living out my life and I am in him. It's not that God is my co-pilot, okay? Or the title of a bottle of ketchup. I couldn't help saying that. But uh, anyway, or, or things go better with Yeshua, you know, or whatever little slogan you might like. 
No, no. He has come and invaded you. He has come to take over. And when we know the Lord, he takes over. Now, what happens then is we're not like prepared for this in our physical being. And so there's like a tug of war that, that, that goes on within. And the book of Galatians talks about the war within. See, the flesh and the spirit, that, that kind of terminology, okay? I, which is another thing to unpack, but, but that is what happens. But we need to understand that. Yeshua hasn't come to just help us get through life. He hasn't come to just uh, give us a good, fulfilling experience. When Yeshua died for our sins and rose from the dead, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that he came to reconcile the world to himself. It's a big deal. He came to reconcile the world to himself. When each of us comes to know the Lord, we become reconciled to him. Okay, We're reconciled. Sins are forgiven. And we're reconciled. And in that reconciliation, what he does in this new creation, we are going back to the way it was supposed to be at the beginning. Created in his image and in his likeness. And the way we were created is to reflect his being, to reflect him in the way we live. And so now that we are now in sync with God, we can live that life that he called us to live from the beginning and reflect his nature, reflect who he is. And that is why it becomes satisfying and fulfilling because we're being what we were made to be. And we're functioning in the way we're made to function. To use the illustration, it just popped in my head, and I know I'm going to be wrong on this, but you'll get my point. It's like a tool. You know, let's say you have some kind of tool. Uh, and uh, what would be a good illustration? I know. So this is here. This is me. Okay? So let's say you have a drill, and it's heavy. But what you really need is something to hammer uh, something like a little nail is sticking out somewhere. So I can't find a hammer, but this drill is really heavy. So if I use the drill and kind of just like take it sideways, and, you, know, you know, it might work, but it's not a very fulfilling experience, I can tell you. <laughs> Nor I can my or, or I can tell you that my wife can truly testify to that experience. But if this drill has a little uh, thing on the end of it that I can stick into a, like a, a screw, uh, a real long screw, and I can just go, that's fulfilling. You know that, there it is. I'm using the tool in the way that it was meant to be used. That's like us, okay? Uh, that's like us. God created us a certain way to function in this world. And until we function in the way that he calls us to function, we try to fill it in with something to make life satisfying. And some people go through their whole lives and become satisfied with things or people or whatever, but not in our true inner selves. So when we embrace Yeshua, we need to know that this is what has taken place. We need to understand that because our outer situation might not change. Our circumstances might not change, but inwardly something has taken place. And that is why Paul says our outer man may be decaying, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Now, 
we need to understand that because I think for some of us, we have gone through different traumas in our lives, and when we come to know the Lord, we're not feeling the love because we're not understanding the love. We're not understanding the kind of transaction that has taken place. And that's where mentoring and discipleship and, and uh, strong uh, men and women pouring themselves into other people and emulating this kind of life comes. Because when we get it, when we understand this love of God that is not like the love that my parents gave me, perhaps. It's not like the love that I ever really experienced going to a place of worship. Then, when we get that, we can love in a radical way that demonstrates a radical life that is attractive to the most difficult person who's not even interested in, uh, in God, but sees something in our lives that's different. And that's what it means when we talk about demonstrating you know, uh, uh, faithful living, the kingdom of God, and, and so on. Okay? And so very important here, regenerate, regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So now, when we, talk, when we go back to 1 John, in chapter 4, in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, uh, born of God is written in such a way that it has taken place with results that continue on. So we've been born of God. The one who loves God, or the one who loves, has been born of God and is still born of God. But then what is interesting and knows God is something that is like continuously just happening, knowing God. And so when we talk about being born of God and knowing God, the way that we can love is in such a way that reflects who God is because this is the way God made us. So uh, he qualifies. See, it's a great qualifier. Love is from God. And so therefore, if we love in this unique way that he's talking about, we have been born of God, and it's demonstrated in the way that we relate to other people. Okay? All right. So then he says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There's that great little phrase. God is love. Right? So he's, what he's saying here is not that God and love are equal, and that love is God, and that if people, whoever they are, if they love they're experiencing divinity or godliness or... No. He's saying that God is love and therefore whatever God does or says uh, is enveloped by love. Even in his judgment and chastisement, everything is motivated by love. You know, uh, theologians argue uh, about anything under the sun. But besides that, I, when it comes to like uh, the Torah, for example, what is the uniting feature of God? What is it about God that unites all of the laws and everything that he does? And so usually it comes down to two attributes. Some would say it's his holiness. Others would say it's his love. May I suggest that God's love and his holiness cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. And by the way, that is why in the first chapter of the book of uh, Isaiah, God basically says, you know, uh, those meticulous uh, 
the meticulous way you're celebrating those holidays and those offerings you're bringing. I hate them. Cut it out. Don't even bother. You know, it's interesting that there is nowhere in those prophets that say things like, you know, when you put the tefillin on today, you accidentally went eight times around. Or there's no verse that says when you brought the wave offering, you didn't wave it exactly to the right or to the left. No. Or when you celebrated uh, Sukkot, uh, you didn't wave the lulav enough times or the service wasn't long enough or you didn't do this or you didn't do that. No, it's always your heart is in the wrong place. See, motivation by fear will, will make us do things in a meticulous way. Motivated by love means God will receive love for us. And I will tell you that in the eyes of God, as I understand the Bible uh, and just you know knowing the Lord, you want to live a holy life, you respond to the motivation of his love. And you will see that you will live a holy life, okay? Because holiness is not defined by meticulous, by uh, uh, following this set of, of uh, rules or instructions, but it is in the way that we indeed live, okay? Now, um, and so this comes from God. God loves us not by having a list of rules that he himself follows in his relationship with us, but by caring, by, by, the, by the way that he interacts uh, with us. Uh, and according to this passage, uh, we see here um, in verse um, 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so uh, when we talk about uh, God's love, it's not that he followed a bunch of rules and regulations, is that he sent Yeshua into this world to submit to earthly rulers, to be humiliated, and to die for our sins so that he could be raised from the dead and regenerate this world. That is how God loved us, by this great action that he took. Volitionally, according to his will. This is how we, he loved us by serving. He loved us by sending Yeshua not by, well, I'll check this off the list, check this off the list, check this off the list. See, that is how God loved us. And so he is holy and he is loving all at the very same time. It's not in this act he's holy and in this act he's loving. No. Now let's turn to Leviticus chapter 19. And here we will see this again. Or again, we'll see it in a little different way. Leviticus 19. Okay. So look at the very beginning of the chapter. In verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Okay? I, okay. Now, when I just, if that's just all I have, I better do things the right way. If I'm going to be holy, I better, as my mother used to say, watch my P's and Q's. Right? Do things the right way. Where did that come from? Anyway, all right. 
But notice the very next thing. Now, there were no verses. There's no verses in the Torah, right? It's just one thing. There's the very next thing. Look what it says. Every one of you shall, re shall reverence his mother and his father. That's the very next thing it says. See? So that's very interesting because that's relational. It's relational. When you revere your father and your mother, it doesn't mean that you're afraid of your father and your mother and hiding under the bed because something bad might happen to you. That's not what it means. You revere them the way the Bible says to revere God, you know, to, uh, to listen to what they say. And it's not talking about extreme situations here, but from the Ten Commandments, you know, honor your father and your mother. I find that fascinating. Now, then it goes on to talk about things that you might expect, about keep my Sabbaths and do them, I, you know, do the offerings and so on. But I want to jump down, for the sake of time, jump down to verse 11. It's all under this heading of be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Pay people on time. Do you realize that? If you own a business and you are responsible to pay someone, holiness is paying them on time, according to the Bible here. Okay? You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. Now, for the sake of time, I won't read the next few verses except to go to verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, now you'll notice in verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. So verse 18 is kind of like the end of a section. And I'm going to suggest that the very last phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord, is like a, a summary statement of what he has said so far. Now notice here, there is a, uh, there is uh, in the verses closest to it, in like eight or nine verses that come before it, it is all about the way people relate to each other. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy at the beginning, and then love your neighbor as yourself. When Yeshua is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. I believe that it's not like, so to speak, one and two, but what he's saying is you cannot do one without the other. It's like they're all, the, they're all part of the greatest commandment, you know? That you cannot love God and hate people. That is like, it's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, shall I continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. It's not part of the mechanics of, of what it means to, uh, to uh, know the Lord. Okay? So, now, when he says you shall love uh, your neighbor uh, as yourself, uh, if you go back here to verse uh, 14, okay? Ooh. Verse 14, this is a very good illustration here. When it says, You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you would think that what he should say after that is, but you should help the blind person. But, you know, do the opposite, right? Uh, bless a deaf man and help a blind person. But that's not what it says. It says, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. And so revering God is doing the right thing. 
for people. Revering God is not just singing another chorus of a particular song or showing up to so many services in a row or my prayer life is better than yours or any of that. Now, obviously, these spiritual disciplines are very good. It's good to sing another chorus. It's good to come to the services. It's good to pray. It's absolutely necessary to do those things and read the Bible and so on. But recognize that those are spiritual disciplines that enable us to relate to God and to people well. And so when John says, love one another because God first loved us, love one another because we're born of a God, recognize that that's where the motivation comes. That's where the inspiration comes. That is where the ability comes from, is, uh, is from uh, the Lord himself breaking into our lives, being regenerated. Now, we'll talk more about how we do this, because when we understand it this way, it is radical the way that we are called to love one another. Uh, but uh, today, what we want to make sure that we understand is where this comes from. So recognize that this love that we are called upon to display is not something we work up because we love God, because we you know, I know the Lord, and so therefore I got to really, um, you know, get it right and uh, love people because that's what we're supposed to do as believers. No, that is who we become as believers. We should be able to be defined by it and that people see that this otherliness, this uh, holiness is grounded in love. And may I suggest that is why sinners were attracted to Yeshua, not because he gave him a list, but because he was able to communicate this radical kind of love. Now, the rest of this passage, verse 11 to 16 and, and following, is going to talk about the results of uh, this love. But may we be motivated, indeed, to live that way. And that is, boy, if, if uh, you ever uh, thought of a time in history when we really need to demonstrate this kind of love. It is in the world that we live in uh, uh, today. And, may, and, and, as, and so therefore, just one last thing, if we're going to call the message good news, may it really be good news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, uh, that uh, you uh, have seen fit Lord, to reconcile the world to yourself and Messiah Yeshua. And thank you, Lord, that uh, every time one of us comes to faith, we ourselves become reconciled to you. And in that reconciliation to you, Lord, may we realize what it means to love others. May we be reconciled. May we forgive. Uh, may we um, uh, serve. Uh, may we uh, suffer, if need be, to serve. Uh, Lord, uh, but may we make a difference in this world and may people see us and may they see Yeshua in us, uh, Lord, in that way, God. And we thank you, God, that you are indeed love. Lord, I do pray for each and every one of us today that we might think more about who we are as Messiah followers and we might think about that transaction that has taken place. And Lord, if we're here today and we know that that's taken place, but I really still am filled with 
grudges and vengeance and, and just terrible feelings about my past. Lord, may we, really, may we reach out to you with the knowledge of what you have indeed done in our lives. And may there be an, an, a healing on the inside so that we really can experience your love so that we can freely love others. Lord, we do thank you. And as we approach the high holy days, may that indeed be our goal. We pray in Yeshua's name.